Hi, thanks for joining us. I'm Jen Winkleman. This next pocket of time is going to be dedicated to the healing art of storytelling. I've been working in the mental health field for the better part of the last two decades, and in that time, because of my work, I've had the great privilege of hearing countless stories. I hear stories that leave me at the end of the day filled with awe about the resilience of the human spirit. And I get to hear stories about those surprising moments when love steps in to save the day at the very last moment. And I hear stories about the true grit it sometimes takes to survive the human experience. I learned something about life and humanity from all of these stories, and I want to be able to share what I've learned. But because of the part that I play in my community, I'm meant to be a keeper of those narratives. It's important that I maintain privacy and confidentiality for the families that I serve. And so those stories have to stay inside the four walls of my counseling office and are held by those sacred moments where one person tells their truth and another person bears witness to it. And in this, there's some sort of magic that we co-create that leads to healing. But this has me thinking that the reach for healing could be bigger. So I decided that outside the counseling office and on a larger scale, we needed a forum for storytelling. We need to get back to the root of taking the time to listen to each other's experiences and to begin to draw from them. So today, our guest and I will have an unscripted conversation, apart from the questions that we routinely ask to get into it. And then you and I will have the opportunity to learn a bit from his or her experience. In every case, there is value and something that we can borrow for our own lives. Because behind every face, there is a story. And in every story, there are life lessons begging to be learned. So as we listen along today, it's up to us to find the lesson in the story. And then if you and I so choose, we can catch that truth like a firefly in a jar and use it as light on our own paths. Thanks again for being with us. This is All I Know. And today our guest is Raj. Raj, welcome. Thank you so much for being here with us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. We're going to start like we always start. We're going to square up with our four springboard questions, and then we'll enter into wherever you want to take us today. Perfect. Okay, Raj. So the first question is, who are you? How do you define yourself? What is it that our listeners need to know about who you are and your background to be able to make the most of today's conversation? I'm an ever so evolving human being taking all my experiences, you know, ups and downs in life and trying to improve myself every day and sap from everything around me. People, experiences, sounds, smells, food, everything. Did you say sap from everything around you? Yeah. I love that phrase. Yeah. I mean, because it it wasn't always like that. You know, growing up, you you kind of have to mold yourself into a way where you accept things and want to do new things and changes are okay with you. And I think that only happens when you get hit by a lot of things in life and you survive through them. It could be a little thing, a big thing, a flat tire I got last week, you know, nailed two weeks later, but earlier than that. Yeah. Throws you off your whole game. You know, you, you had your day planned. You wanted to do something a certain way. Derailed. So, derailed. <laughs> so that's what I am. I mean, I'm just trying to move forward and accept everything that comes my way. You know, be a, be a good husband, be a good father, do those kinds of, I have a big family in Colorado. So just doing that and just surviving the game. I love it. And I love that expression of sapping 
from the people and things around you. I'm stealing that. You can. I'm going to use that. It's so it's it's better than like sponging things up or. It's a better word. It's like absorbing. Yeah. You're just absorbing everything around you that you can, good and bad, and you fit fit it in your life and kind of decipher what it means in your mind. And it's slow, and it's rich. Mm -hmm. I like it. I'm stealing it. I do. Please do. (laughs) So some of us believe that we have a rather ordinary life, and other people think that they're living the extraordinary. So when we take that spectrum, ordinary to extraordinary, where do you plot your life? I try to make it extraordinary, but it's actually ordinary. It's just a mindset of how you do things. I mean, you're still going to do the same routine things every day. We can't try to be everywhere all the time, or or, as I say, your plate will be too full. But if you enjoy every little moment that you have and make the most of every moment you have, it can be very extraordinary. Awesome. How do you define success? You know, that's been a thing throughout my life that I've, growing up, it was like, you got to be a doctor, you got to do this. I mean... I come from a very well-educated family. I have nine of my nieces and nephews, I just realized, have graduated CU. I mean, that, that's a small world, but it's a lot of people you think about. I actually never graduated. I'm kind of sidetracking a moment. I didn't graduate from college, but I went to school for 12 years. I switched my major three different times. Well, that's 12 years of college. Yes. Yeah. Well, I have the credits for it. I just don't have the degree. So I'm just a few classes away, and I just recently, after going to my niece's graduation a couple of weeks ago, I thought, you know, I need to get back and finish it. Now it's a good time. Life just caught up to me. Um, so, I got, I'm sorry, I got to ask you the original question. No, that's okay. Oh, it was about the definition of success. Okay, so that... But I don't want you to lose where you're headed about school. It's well, okay to say I want that. to tie it in. Like, so, originally I always thought that you had to get that big degree and then go find that job out there. Fortunately for me, I've had a lot of jobs in my life. I, I started when I was 13. I was uh, babysitting, snow shoveling. I had a snow shoveling. Uh, my brother and I would go house to house whenever it snowed. We had a snow day. A little entrepreneur. Yeah, lawn mowing. We did the lawn mowing. Then we'd drag our lawnmower across the street, all the people's houses, and charge them a certain amount of money, clean their weeds up. So I've always had the work ethic, but I always had an end goal that I had to find a specific career and make it fit. And that's what happened to me. When I went to college, it didn't fit to business school first. And that didn't, you know, at that time, I didn't. I should, probably should have finished it. You look back. Then I went to psychology, sociology, criminology, those kind of tie together. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the meanwhile, while I was going to school, I was also working. You know, I had multiple jobs, two jobs at work at the food place at the uh, University of Colorado, as well as like do an internship in the accounting upstairs. But still, just you, life just is so fluid. You keep moving and moving. And at some point, I realized that maybe I'm not as successful as I thought, but I kept moving. I was getting jobs um, as a general manager at food food places. I worked in a lot of food places. It helps open some companies up. Um, even then, it didn't feel that successful. I was still busy. I had a good job. I could pay for all my bills. But then you start always looking over your shoulder, looking around. You're seeing other people that you know that may be more successful. That's just how we're trained, you know? It's so tricky, that and comparison. It hurts you in a way, you know, because now you're kind of almost disappointed in yourself. So, it, but it also pushes you too, because you're like, I got to keep doing, I got to keep going. And in doing that, I've gone through several jobs. I've worked in so many different arenas, environments, retail, food, management. I've been general manager, almost district manager, helped open restaurants. I had my own business at one point, a little grocery store. Cool. But the, the economy went bad in 2008 when the gas prices were like $5. Mm-hmm. Um, everything got expensive, so it's hard to run that store. It was in Boulder. So just, just in general, we had, to, we had to lose it, give it up. And so I've actually done a lot of different things. And finally in my life, and the funny thing is right now I'm waiting tables. I was a mailman eight months ago. 
I found that would be lead my road to success. I guess, you know, good professional job. I'll have a good retirement. Stable. Stable. Always you needed. Know, but physically, it's difficult, as is everything. You've got to work. Wherever you go, you're going to have to work. Mm-hmm. Um, but the key to what you asked me is finding that success at the point where you feel happy and you feel comfortable with what you're doing. As long as you have enough money to put a roof over your head, food, all those the, the basic needs are met. You still have some traveling money and fun time. You should be happy in yourself. You shouldn't try to push yourself too hard, what I finally came to the conclusion of. Because like I said, I've done so many things that have made me do things I didn't want to do. Like being a general manager in food places. I'm there 16 to 80 hours a week once you're on salary. You know? I hate this. You have to push kids to do stuff that they don't even want to do. They don't want to be there. You know, 16, 17-year-olds working in fast food place, they don't want to be there, really. They're on their phones. Their minds are somewhere else. And, and it takes a lot of energy out of you to manage this whole... You've got inventory, you've got people. And so outside looking in, people are like, oh, he's successful. He's a GM, he's making great money. But if you're not happy inside, that's not success. You know, if you're, if you're away from your family too much, you don't have time for just little pleasures in life, then you're almost doing a disservice to yourself. So for me, the answer to that is I feel you just got to find your happiness wherever it is. Keep jumping until you find it. Well, I like what you said because... Even a few minutes ago, you said something. I wish I, my brain could find exactly what it was, but you said something about, like, I just kept moving, or I was still moving, even though I knew that job wasn't the thing, or that wasn't the place, or that wasn't the field of study that I wanted to be in, but I kept moving. Yeah. And I kind of, it's not exactly where you took us, but part of where my head went was, maybe movement is success. Like, as long as you don't stop. You're succeeding. I think so. I think you've just defined it. And I, I give you one quick example of my life that made me see this way. My father came from India, and he you know, came here to get an education. He went to BYU. He ended up getting double master's degree. He was a geologist. Smart However, guy. late 80s, um, the field fell through. Now you've got technology taking over. You don't need as much manpower. So he got a grant to go back to school. He studied waste management. He got a degree in that. And then... Now companies don't want to hire him because he's so old. He's in the older range where you got to pay more. You might as well find somebody younger. What does my dad do? He goes to the University of Colorado and works in food services. And, and he's got double master's degrees. Some of my relatives are looking at him like, well, what are you doing? How could you do that? Like, But to him, he was happy all the time. And he said his response always was, I'm taking care of my family. I'm feeding, paying bills. Wow. And I learned that. It doesn't matter what you're doing. My brother's got multiple degrees as well. He's jumped around all over the place. And now he's finally happy working as a medical technician in surgery rooms. And he must have gone to school as much as I have. Just because he took chunks of school, go get a master's. He's so far away from what he started with. And that's my point here. It's like, you may think you're going one direction, but let the wind and life take you wherever you go, but just be happy with it. Find your general happiness within your boundaries, where you are, within your environment, I said Shay. Because if you don't keep yourself happy, you're not going to be successful. No. If you're if you're doing something you don't want to and it burns you inside and you don't want to, you feel like every time you're on your way to that job or that profession, it's just it's not a right fit. But you're doing it for the money or for status or for other things rather than for yourself. Then you're not successful. You know, you might have the greatest you know a title job that's amazing. Well, and it's so much a part of this culture, isn't it? Um, that we we are we are supposed to be happy but there's a lot of messaging around what it is that makes you happy that is not consistent with actual truth 
You're right. There's a lot of market happiness in this country. We've been taught some people shop, 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 buy this, own this, you'll be happy. Open a Coke and you'll be happy. Yeah. I love Coke, by the way. That's not a slip. Yeah. Coke. No, she's right, though. Like, <laughs> certain things are designed, like, you have something that should give you happiness. Yeah. But it doesn't. That's just an indulgent, that's a pl- momentary pleasure sometimes. But to truly be happy is to know your feelings and where you feel. You know, we all go through it. In a day's time, ups and downs. We're happy, something hits us unexpectedly, we're sad, you know, but... but Going back to change, you have to modify your day. You got to be ready to, to adapt to anything that comes your way. And if you can navigate through life, I think that's another form of success too. Yeah. Yeah, being able to read the stars. Yeah, and accept things that happen around you. We have family members that get sick. We have little things that change, alter our lives that, that we weren't planning on. Right. But we got to be there for them. We got to drop things we're doing. We got there's just that's just one example. I mean, there's. Physical things that happen, like, like I said, the flat tire earlier, you know, you're not expecting that. You wanted to be somewhere in 20 minutes, you got the flat tire, you got a speeding ticket, or what do you have to just deal with it? These wrenches are always going to come, they're obstacles, and success is getting through those humps. With a little bit of grace. Yeah, with as much grace, because I mean, we all get mad, I get mad, I start, you know, cursing away if something really just throws me off, but... Yeah, if we start measuring my success by tantrums, I'm a big yeah. girl. <laughs> but those tantrums also can be healthy, you know, you got to get it out of your system as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, because you can't keep it bottled up inside either. Yeah. So I think success is, uh, the way to look at it is just, are you happy? If you're happy, and if you're at least thinking about a way to get happy, you're on the right path. So that last anchor question then for us, Raj, has to do with those life experiences or events or circumstances, themes, um, maybe three, four, whatever comes to mind for you first, that you think have most shaped your life and who you are. Can you can you bullet those for us really quick and then we'll choose one to dive into? Yeah, um, I've had so many. My upbringing was one way because, you know, my parents were Indian, my mom and dad, you know, tried to keep us in that culture, but we grew up in a place that I had hardly any Indians here in Colorado is where I've been raised, born and raised. Mm-hmm. So that, Not a huge Indian population. No, not until recently. Now you're seeing a lot more showing up because of the tech jobs and all these things. But like when I was a child... At the time we were growing up? 40 years ago. It no. Was, yeah. There really weren't many. Yeah. And so often, you know, unfortunately, I was um, exposed to racism, things like that. As a child, that kind of pushes you in certain directions. As a teenager, because you're not able to get over them until you're older and, as they say, fight your demons. Um, it's funny, now I can get along with any kind of person, but at one point I wanted to stay away from people. So, I mean, my upbringing was different, you know, raised a certain way, ethnic way at home versus outside when you're going to school, when you're socializing with friends, doing those kinds of activities. But if you look back later, it's nice because you have both of those. You have your ethnicity still with you and the culture around you. But Did your mom immigrate from India as well? Yeah. My father went back to India, met her, married her, brought her back, and she was not as educated. Very smart lady, but she, and she had to push herself, you know? So if I have the terminology right, I think I'm thinking this through accurately, you're first-gen American. Yeah. Because your parents immigrated from India. I think it's, it's a weird thing. I used to think that, but I think I'm considered second generation. The one that shows up here is the first, but we okay. can look at that. Um, yeah, yeah I, I don't know what, but well, I guess regardless, it really doesn't matter what the term is. Your upbringing and the fact that you were raised by immigrant parents mm-hmm. in the U.S. Yeah. And all of that, all that comes with that. Yeah. That's like... We're saying we're we're running over that with a really broad brushstroke, but I bet the details and layers underneath that are 
deep and vast. They are because you have to learn to navigate both both sides. Mm-hmm. Like as a child, we traveled a lot, so we, we'd get to go to India and see our relatives. My grandparents all lived there, and throughout my life, I've been there nine times. And that those, and that in itself is experiences. Those travels to those kind of points on Earth and certain places that you stop in between really give you a broader, a bigger perspective of life. You so see. your upbringing and travel. Mm-hmm. And then the big one I have is a. Uh, I had a situation where I died and came back. I was in a coma for three months. We what? Can talk about that. Yeah, I was. Uh, I was a lot of circumstances built up to this, and it was we were on vacation. I was lucky that we were in California because there's only two facilities at the time that could have saved me from the point I was at, and one was in California and one was on the East Coast. And so it, clearly, that's the one we're talking. About. Yeah. yeah that, Except, that. Raj, we might have to have you come back because I really want to dig into being raised by immigrant parents and your childhood. I can't help myself. Yeah, no, that that's a lot. There's a lot of stuff there that happened, you know, to create uh, create my mindset and where I am now, you know. Yeah. Well, okay, so I'm being a little bossy by saying you died and came back, and we're clearly talking yeah, about I mean, that. Yeah, that's, that's... But where are you What what uh, between travel and your upbringing and this near-death experience? What did you want to talk about today? Not all of it. I mean, in a sense, because I'll just briefly go over the, the childhood, was the way I was raised, the way I kind of evolved. Um, and then I went to college, of course, and we moved, and we moved my senior year, which is rough. When you go to school from kindergarten through 11th grade... With one set of friends, you build all these relationships, and then you move to another town. No, that sounds like a nightmare. But it, it kind of was, but then it was a blessing. Because I made when I went to move to Boulder, I made friends with every kind of person. The stoners, the jocks, the nerds. I mean, all, whatever they're labeled. Yeah, I mean, whatever today's terms yeah, are. I made friends with everybody. That's just that. That's how what I became finally, you know? I was like, I, I need to reach out. I think being pushed into that situation made me become that way. Like, I didn't have much time. I only had one year here. I don't know anybody here. So it drew you out. And instead of pushing myself out and, like, st- staying away from everybody, I kind of just kind of try to grab everyone I could and try to get involved. Catch up, as I, as I should say. Mm-hmm. And so after that, went to college, all that stuff. Um, going back to the, the big story, it's... I can tell, like, Pulp Fiction in different parts, beginning, middle, end. But the thing was, was at one point, let's see, in 2001 is when this happened. I'd already gotten married. We've been married for two years. And that itself is a whole story, too. I'm I'm sure, yeah. Um, Is your wife Indian? She is Indian. I met her at my cousin's wedding in India. Oh, wow. I had to drop out of school because my grandfather was dying, and I wanted to see him one more time. So I had to drop out of college uh, one semester. To go back. To go back. And the first day I was there, um, the port was Bombay where you'd stop, and then you'd move on to other places because that's where the international airport was. Uh, I, one of my cousins uh, was happened to be getting married that day. So I went to her wedding and I met her best friend, which happened to be my wife. Wow. And we clicked right away. And that day was just a crazy story because we were, the hotel I was staying at, they were filming. Uh, Bollywood makes a lot of movies and TV shows and stuff. Uh-huh. So they were actually filming that day at the hotel I was at. I got out in the morning, I walked out and I see a big crowded circle. And I walked right past the circle, but, you know, another hundred yards where they were actually filming. And I sit down next to the actress while they're doing makeup on her face. And the guy looks at me like, who are you? What are you doing? <laughs> I'm meant to be here. And I'm like, hi, what's going on? It's just a you know, casual conversation. You know? yeah. And next thing I know, in the afternoon, I was hanging out with these actors in their room. And they're like, we should go to a party this evening and all that. Oh, my gosh. I was like, okay, I'll talk to you guys later. I got to go to uh, this pre-wedding kind of thing. So I went to that first. And then I met Bina, who happened who I met Mary. We talked for hours. And then I went back and I told those actors, I'm like, I can't go with you guys tonight. I got to go back for the wedding tonight and I got to meet this girl again. 
So instead of going out, but I took pictures with all of them so I could have proof of this. Cause I yes, my, yes. My nieces and nephews would know who they are. I didn't know who they were. Yeah. Um, I went back, you know, all night. I walked in, and, and Indian weddings are like carnivals. They have little booths set up everywhere. They're extravagant. You'll have thousands of people there. Cause you, Did, was your family at this wedding wearing the traditional dress that I would think yeah, of like yeah. in a movie? Yeah, well they do because to them in India, a wedding is uh, like college. They save for that like that way to make it the biggest thing in their lives. Walking around, can't find her anywhere. Finally get up to the podium to talk to my my cousin and her new husband. Congratulate them. I'm like, where's your friend? <laughs> oh, she left That's earlier. She here. left earlier on the train back to this other city. Like, oh, you're oh, kidding. Boy. Yeah, so that that's a funny story. Then later I ended up running into her. I told my cousin about her. Um, and he, he arranged for us to meet up. And then I finally had to make a decision. I'm like, you know, I'm going back, back to the States in like three weeks. I really like this lady a lot, you know. So... We just hung out a little more, and then I made the decision. I'm like, I asked her to marry me, you know? Was, oh, my back, gosh. Yeah. After five minutes. Yeah, we've been married for 18, 18 come, years now. Come with me back yeah. to the States. Yeah, 18 years wow. we've been married. we got two kids. So then this happened in 1999 we got married. She got here end of two, um, end of 1999. Did you marry in India? Yeah, we married in India in January. And it was extravagant, like three days of stuff. My grandparents, my grandfather went out. He had fireworks and big thing right through his village where we, we had like a parade in front of us and they had like people with music they're singing and dancing and we went around the whole village and it was like in India it's like a three day thing and so it was, it was huge uh, but then like when, when I finally got back settled in she showed up like six months later and we just worked hard and had fun and at that point she pushed me to getting a job in noodles because uh, I knew the owners of the company that started it I used to work for them at pizza I've had so many jobs um I went uh, went there with them, took on a job, and within a month they were offering me a GM to take over a store. Wow. And I was like, okay, well, let me take a vacation before I come back and run this store for you. Another cousin of mine was getting married in Arizona, so we took a road trip. My parents, my brother, my wife, and I took a road trip through Arizona on to California, and we were going to spend New Year's in California. Uh, I got sick. There was the Broncos-Baltimore game in 2001. I'm a big Broncos fan. Are you? And so my wife's like, why is, why is my husband laying in the back, like curled up in a little ball and not watching the game? That was another cousin's house in San Francisco. We were going to have fun and just enjoy New Year's and all that. Yeah, so she knew something wasn't right. Something wasn't right. Because you weren't doing your yeah, Broncos. Yeah, it just wasn't well. Like, my stomach was hurting so much. So then I went to, they took me to urgent care. Did you know what was wrong? No. Not until after all this, all this happened after I came out of the coma. And we, you know, that's when we figured out everything. Had I known, I probably wouldn't have gotten to that point. So we, we go to Washington General Urgent, it was urgent Care first, and they did not know what to do with me. They're like, we don't know. You need to go to the hospital. So then they took us. So I went to Washington General Emergency Room. At that point, my wife and brother-in-law were like, well, we've been doing this all morning. We're going to go step out to have a snack. Just you know, stay right here in the emergency room. They'll call you when they're ready. I got to a point where I just pushed myself back. I walked back into the emergency room and laid down on a gurney. I'm like, I can't wait anymore. And then I probably recognized about another half hour of time. My wife had just come back. And then, boom, I wake up three weeks later at Stanford. Wait, 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 wait. Let me... Whoa. So, you basically force your way back to the ER because you have to lay down. Yeah. Your wife comes back from having a snack. Yeah. That's the last thing you remember. Mm-hmm. The next thing you learn, you're at Stanford and you've been asleep for three weeks. Yeah. Three and a half weeks. Okay. And it was a big process, too. They had to airlift me, apparently. Did you go... Apparently, yeah. Did you go under, like, on your own, or did they medically induce a coma? No, I think I went under. 
and they got I, away. I was knocked out. I mean, they said my body puffed up to a giant, like almost balloon size, and what? and then it was it got really crazy because the the insurance at the time did not want to take care of me. My employer got really upset with them and said, we will sue you because he's still covered. He still works for us. He's been paying. And they were trying to play this game of, well, he's out of state. And so they forced him to do it. Had they not, they would have loved me outside. And that's how they work, unfortunately, here with, you know, the certain things that happen. Oh, my but gosh. Luckily, all that went through. And three and a half weeks later, I wake up to find out I had necrotizing pancreatitis. You're going to have to describe what that is for us in layman's terms. I will. I'm sure some people it's, know what it means, but other than pancreas, I'm lost. It's a, a, a really rare, a, a hardest form of pancreatitis, when your pancreas is completely damaged. And so, well, and that produces your insulin in your body to regulate that. And yeah. so what had happened was, is hereditarily, uh, in my family, diabetes is, is all over the place. Grandparents have it, my mom has it, my dad has it. In Indians in general, it's, it's quite prevalent. Um, and I was a big drinker back in the day, through college and high school, a lot of partying. I got to the point where I was drinking so much beer every day, and I was waiting tables, working in restaurant environments, you know, so... Partying a little yeah, bit. Yeah, so it just became, an, and of course, you build your um, immunity up to that. You can drink more every time as, you, as time goes on. So apparently all this time I'm taking carbohydrates, and I'm prone to diabetes, and I never went and got it checked. So I would recommend people, if you think you have something, if something's off, or you look into your family history, go get yourself checked out. It's uh, one of our tendencies to go only get checked out when something feels wrong, mm-hmm. you're almost at a critical point. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what it turned out to be. As I was contributing to di- I had diabetes all along, I didn't really realize it, how severe it was, and I'm drinking beer, which is just causing the high blood, and I'm not checking my blood because I didn't think that... Uh, blood sugar levels because I didn't know I had diabetes. And you were feeling okay at that time? You weren't feeling sick to go to a doctor? Lots of stints here and there, but I would always think it's something else. Like, oh, you know, something I ate yesterday or, you know, just, you know, your mind tends to like think of the easiest possible thing that it could be just to make your life easier. Like you want to keep moving. You got to get up and keep doing your stuff. And Yes, I'm okay. Yeah. Just push through. Yeah, push through. Exactly. Yeah. But it turned out to be a big thing. And and luckily I was, I said there was only two places in the United States that could have helped me. They did many procedures to get me back, and when I did finally wake up, I must have lost about 60 pounds. I was 60 pounds lighter than I was. Um, Then there was all these other new symptoms that showed up while I was in the hospital, because I still spent much time in the hospital Um, after that. uh, I'm in the hospital, and here's where all this stuff got really strange for me. Now you wake up, and you're trying to put together what had just happened. And I wasn't just out the whole time. This is where it gets deep. I had been to another place. I had I had seen things while I was in a coma, heard things, felt things I'd never felt before. Um, going to spiritual level, it was, I can definitely say, and you may hear this from other people, and some people may not want to choose to believe this, but there's something outside of what we see and live every day. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of stories out there you can tap into. There's more than an afterlife. On that note, you know, I don't want to disgrace any kind of religion because I've studied all of them. Um, and that's why I choose the word spirituality because there's truths in all of them, but there's the, the underlying truth is there's something out there beyond us. And there's, and I hope people believe that because you don't want to just one and done your life and you're done. You want to hope that you, your soul gets to go somewhere else and go through other things. But basically, I went to another place. And the rare thing was I do reco- recollect um, my skin tone was different than others around me. So that's maybe why I wasn't completely gone. I was able to come back. But I was walking in a different place, and the feelings were absolutely different. I felt free and good and no negative. No, I mean, just all positive feelings. 
when I came back is when I had to, had to go back and reanalyze all that. And a lot of times when I was in the hospital, when I came out of the coma, that was when it was two things happening at once. And I'm trying to think back on what I saw and what, what I felt the last three weeks versus now what's happening to me where I am sitting in this, in this hospital bed. So this is like so much information coming at us and I don't know if it's just my brain needing time to process it or if the listeners will have that too, but I want to take you back for a second to going into a coma. And I almost feel like we have to talk about this from two sides inside the coma, which only, you know, yeah. and out and outside like where your wife and your parents were and the doctors, what was what was happening kind of in parallel so you went you went to sleep and you said that they did a lot of procedures and was that surgeries all kinds of things because i remember one of them they tried to do again when i came out um and they're like you were awake during that they had there's a surgery procedure where they have to tie you up standing and they put sutras in you, which are big tubes, because like I said, I had ballooned up, so they had to take all this positive nasty stuff. drain it. They drain up, yes. Yeah. So they had to actually stick two tubes on the side of me, mm-hmm. and they're like hose. They're all the way in there, so they have to actually go in and like, yes. put them in a way where they stay there. Yes. And so these are procedures that are happening to keep me alive while I'm in a coma. And so during that time, my family, relatives from all over the state showed up. My parents were stuck living out of like a little motel while this is happening. And they don't know if you're going to make it. No. At some point, my brother and my mom had to go back, you know, back to our home, work, and, you know, do all that stuff. My wife stayed with me. My father stayed. And my wife has a lot of relatives in California, so many of them had made pilgrimage from wherever parts of California to show up and visit and give her support. So at what point, and maybe this may not have ever been processed by you and your family, but probably it was. At what point during that three and a half weeks of sleep were you diagnosed with I think they figured it out right away they knew they knew what had happened for me to get to that point and then it was just about now Survive. now that we know what's wrong how do we keep him alive yeah. and get him healthy again yeah. but you were sleeping the whole time I was time. sleeping they don't know when you, if you're going to come out of it or not anytime someone's in a coma they don't know they hope for it you know yeah. they think they're doing the right things and what will create this person to come back and when I did come back the first few things I heard you're not going to walk talk or do any of the things you used to be able to do you're not going to be the same. Like they had, it. and it was the weirdest thing is while I was even there, when I came out, I started having issues every day. Something would pop up, and I would be going downhill rather than improving. The only improvement was I came out of the coma. But I came back with a lot of spiritual energy and power because I also a lot of people prayed for me when I was in that situation. Yeah. And to be very honest with you, I was raised very spiritual with a lot of religion and a lot of good stuff, good mana and all that. However, I didn't always practice it. As I got older, I pushed away from it. As most adolescents, most people do in this world. They don't want to look at that. We're so in ourselves, in our little world, what we see in front of us, instant gratification. And now I can use the example of technology. You see people walking on their phones. We're so far away from that. You know, we're almost scared to believe in anything anymore. Because mm-hmm. like, you meet the extremists, too. You meet a lot of your friends that are just so into that. And then the kind of, that also scares a lot of people off. So... I've come out and now I'm analyzing everything. I'm like, wow, what did I see? What happened? And did you, when, when I, I'm so sorry. No, we, we can jump around because that's how this story is. <laughs> yeah. I just have to like crystallize this for people who are listening because since you lived it, I think it's different inside you than it is for us who are trying to understand. Yeah. So you're in the coma. Do you, aside from, there were some situations where you were awake and they didn't think you were awake and you kind of knew what was happening 
a little like it's almost like being in a reverse dream. Like it was like I felt things, but I was somewhere else the whole time. And like and when they did that surgery, when I was standing up, I could feel the knives going into the side of my body. Like I felt pain. Yeah. And so that's how I could really relate that. When I came out of the coma, they had to go back and retighten the sutures that were coming out. Yeah. So that's when I mentioned it to the technician or the surgeon. I'm like, I have you did this to me before, and he's like, you felt that? He asked me in a question form, like you knew that we did that to you. And I'm like, yeah, I felt it. I described it to him. And he's like, wow. So you didn't see anything that was happening on the outside. No. But you you felt I things felt that were things. happening sometimes on the outside. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like being in parallel places at the same time. Your mind is somewhere and your body's somewhere. Did you feel yourself go to sleep? Did you know that you were... I, when you were slipping into the coma? When I was slipping, I did. When I was back with the whole... I walked in the emergency room and I kind of passed out. I remember like phasing out and seeing my wife there. My, my brother-in-law, and then they were like, pulling doctors in to check me real quick, and one of them started making the diagnosis, and then next, like I said, the next thing I know, I'm going through this fantasy world of life, this whole another place, and then I wake up three weeks later, and then it's a clash happening at this point. So before we talk about the clash, mm-hmm. everybody is wondering, like, we need you to describe in great detail where you went and, okay. and what you saw. And this is the fun, hard part, because when I got out, a lot of people wanted me to tell them this stuff. Yeah. But then I got also had a lot of people that were just kind of doubting everything, so then it almost makes me doubt everything. So throughout time, I've had to reprocess and do a lot of meditation and rethink everything and go back to my upbringing. And because when she, once you come out, I talked to a lady that was in the hospital. She said she had a similar experience. She said it's hard to put your foot back in this world once you put your foot in that world. Back in the world where we live. Yeah. Once you've been there, it's very hard to be here. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Because everything's clashing again. Like, you saw something, and at that moment, it means... The funny thing is, when we as humans, when we're in danger, we have trouble, all of a sudden now we're praying. You start asking God for help, even if you don't believe in God. It's Think about Think back in your life when you had something just messed up happen that you didn't want somebody's dying in your family... All of a sudden, now you're praying. It's like, it's amazing what happens. Yeah, please God if you're there. Yeah, and that's what happened to me. What you just said, well, I was in the hospital recovering after the coma. Little things were popping up every day for me. I don't remember them all in detail. Coma things? Um, n- now, new physical things to my body. Got it. Because I had not eaten in three weeks. and all these procedures that went through my body. Yeah, you're not going to walk. You're not going to yeah. talk. You're not going to be the same. Yeah, so... Uh, I'll give you an example. Like maybe five days after I get up, they're like, "Now you have ulcers because of all the meds we've been putting in you." We have to cauterize that, which is where they give you lockjaw. They can't give you anesthesia. They they just stick this cord down there that has a laser on it and a camera. And, and so I was, it up. yeah, I was having procedures basically every day to fix little things that are now propped up because of this whole thing that happened to me. So. There was one night where they told me, you're probably not going to survive tomorrow. Like, they were always grim. At the hospital, they give you the grimmest news. This is how they have to do it so you don't get your hopes up too high. And then they want you to rather be on the downside than be happy when it turns out to be better, as I've noticed. When they were telling you this stuff, did they... Could you talk back? Since yeah. they were saying you, you're yeah. not going to be the same? Yeah, when I came back, it was... It was Starting all over again, like trying to rehab walking and like talking and you just, you'll just wake up and you got thaw out basically. But you could communicate. Yeah, I could communicate. My family was there. Um, I'll give you what, what really was, here's where I came back to the spiritual side. All these things were happening to me every day and they would come up and say, well, tomorrow we're going to have to do this surgery, another surgery on you if this doesn't improve or if this gets worse. I started doing this weird little mantra because I knew there's something out there now after going through that and seeing the other side of it. I prayed. I made a mantra where I prayed to every God name known on this planet. 
I even threw in Zeus. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, I'm like if one of you is out there and you hear me, I started naming like Hindu gods, Chinese gods, Jesus. I mean, like naming them all. Anything I know that somebody's associated religiously to. So if you can hear me, help me. And I, all night, because I'm just laying in a bed all day. I started doing this for a while. Waiting for the worst. And things started getting better all of a sudden. You're not going to believe this. I mean, doctors were coming in the next day going, well, what you had yesterday is gone now. And it was really moving to me. Like, I was feeling and experiencing something that was magical at that time. You're a walking miracle, I was Raj. in a bad spot there. I mean, it was, now that I really look back and think on it, it was, it was really bad. Um, they kept telling my wife I wasn't going to survive while I was in the coma. And that late, great lady just stuck with me there. You know, people were telling her to ditch this guy. We'd only been married for two years. Like, just this is your chance out. Get out of this. And she stuck it out, you know. And so, but the thing was, is I learned that there is, A, despite the experience of being in another place, and C, coming out of the coma, and having the spiritual energy all of a sudden, that something was helping me because I was asking it to. You know, and, and that's just the thing. We as humans, uh, we just... We become so tarnished by technology and fun and crazy things that aren't really legitimate. And I think everybody can look back on their lives and think of a moment or a person that they had this, you know, spiritual energy or thing happen to them where they, you know, you acknowledged it, but then you forgot about it because you got back in your daily routine the next day, the next yeah. day, and the next day. And unfortunately, sometimes these things happen at funerals or these kind of places where something big has happened in your life and you survive, or things you survive, basically. And that's when you when you see these when, when your eyes open up to this. That's what I believe. So maybe it's too personal to tell us about the other side. No, it's not. I mean, because I'm still trying to make something out of it. I just know there's something there, and I, I was always thought that maybe people see different things when they go to the other side. Did, did the doctors tell you that you died? I was there. I, I knew I was there. They, they, I know you know you were there. I'm wondering if they said you were dead. Well, when you're in a coma, you're almost dead. So they don't really say you are until you flatline. Yeah. So that's why I believe that I was in a like, barely alive state. Right in between. And then that's why, like I said, when I was on the other side, I saw my I saw people like glowing, whereas I wasn't. My skin tone was more normal mm -hmm. versus other things around me, other people and things I saw. Because you still maybe had a heartbeat. Yes. So I was kind of in a transition place. And that's how I felt when I got out, when I reanalyzed everything over and over and over for years, you know, thinking about it. I'm like, and talking to people that had similar situations. What was the skin tone like of the others that you saw? More transparent, like glowy, like souls. Like did did you recognize that? Ghost-like. It's really strange to say, like, you know, um, I didn't recognize anybody there. And I felt like the whole time I was in a transition place, neither here nor there. All the places I went to, I, it, it was weird. I went to so many different places during that period. So like I said, it's almost like you're in a dream world, but you're there um, in transition points, which is, um, let's see, the best way to do it. This is the reason I didn't go further with this with a lot of people is because it's hard to describe a lot of this. Yeah. There's no words for it. There's no words for it. It's mostly by feel and by sight. And I felt emotions like... It was like a journey. There was parts where I felt like uh, pain and sadness and fear. And then all of a sudden, all, at one point, I was all lifted and there was nothing but just happiness and joy. And you're almost in different spots. Like, I don't know if I was recreating my life or I was on a plane at one point. I was in, felt like in the Nepali mountains, places I'd never been, like all over the world, just in different spots. Just seeing different scenes. It's almost like 
Like you're looking at a tourist map, like we're going to go to, to a country to visit, and you're seeing different, like a scene of the beach, a scene of the airport, a scene of this. So I felt like I was getting views of the transition point in between. Like you're seeing the spiritual world, your world kind of fading. You're going one, towards one thing. So you're kind of seeing people come and go. Like, like I said, I saw a lot of people going, and I was kind of stuck in the middle there. And I think like the part about um, being in the mountains in Nepal, it felt like I was in like surgical tent where people were like keeping me down trying to get me fixed um so it's like different parts to that too i mean that, that was its own little felt like i was there for days being tortured like tied down to a bed and couldn't get out and the world was on fire hi friends it's jen here and i hate to do this when the world is on fire but we have run out of time for raj today and so i have to jump in here and cut off the conversation and we will pick it up next time. There's actually still quite a bit of material left with Raj. So we did a second episode. So please listen in next time. We hope that you will join us. And thank you so much for being here today. As always, we thank you so much for listening in. One of the most important things for our speakers and guests when they agree to be vulnerable with us about their life experience is to know that what they have to say is going to fall on ready ears and we couldn't do that without you. Please remember that all of the opinions, ideas, information, and views shared as part of today's conversation belong solely to each speaker. And while we hope our listeners find each episode helpful and interesting, please note that this podcast doesn't serve as therapeutic intervention, nor should it substitute as advice or direction from a mental health professional. All I Know is a production of Inward Bound, a private psychotherapy practice based in Denver, Colorado. We specialize in working with adoptive families and provide support and training associated with attachment and the impact of early trauma on childhood development. If you or someone you love is struggling with adoption-related or relational challenges, find us on the World Wide Web. This podcast is produced by Jessica Barry Edelstein and me with audio engineering by Craig Knapp. If you'd like to be a guest on All I Know, please reach out to Jess. You can contact her at jess.alliknow at inwardboundco.com. One more time, it's jess, J-E-S-S, dot alliknow at inwardboundco.com. We hope you'll join us for the next installment of All I Know. We release a new episode every week. And in the meantime, this is Jen for all of us here at the show reminding you, catch all the light you can.